Okay. So you write about the human condition. I have, um, I have a, um, that's a twofold question. Tell us what that, what that means for you. And I don't know why I felt like the, my, the intuition to ask you, what is the human condition? Oh, well, <laughs> well, honestly, I think um, joy and suffering are like the um, two pillars that we move through in our life, right? And um, when I was very young, I wanted to be a poet. And so I was really conflicted in the first three years of nursing, like, I have to be a poet, like I had to do this path. And Galway Canal was teaching in Hawaii, and I moved to Hawaii to take his classes. And I was really in a lot of turmoil. And he said to me, well, you can go to the library for the next 12 years and write a thesis and be in the academy. Or you can just live your life and be a poet in the world. And the minute he said that, I thought poets should be in the world, right? Poets should be witnessing. So I consider that a big part of my life. And I feel like all I've witnessed much more suffering than I have joy. Mm. But I do believe that joy drives a lot of people's hope that carries them through their suffering. But suffering to me is, is kind of like a bedrock, how we deal with it, what form it takes in our lives. Uh, that, that's sort of like, to me, that is the human condition. I mean, it's not, not super happy, but I, I do feel like it's what shaped me. And right. so then I felt like I could witness and assist and be present for other people's journey. Yeah. So, so, uh, Layton's first thing he said, he read this poem to me before it got on. He said, Oh my God, this is so dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I love it. and I love her. Okay. Yes, it's and, dark and I love her. All yes. Right? And, yeah, yeah, but yeah. the thing is, you it's called, told I just want to the tradition of, I want to tell you a little bit about the tradition of writing from a dark space. Is this the poem where the girl gets thrown against the fence? Skirt with strawberry paisley. Yeah, where was that poem? I didn't think that poem was published anywhere. I I looked it up, and it is the first piece of poet of of writing that it was interesting. I looked, and I wanted to see who you were, so I clicked on images, and then this there was an image of that poem. Wow, I love that. Yeah, from that. Poetry yeah. Sunday, another brave poem. From Mary Jane Nealon. Oh, huh. fascinating. By Women's well, Voices for Change. Well, I'm glad it's out there. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And I thought uh, it was, it's really beautifully dark and it's, it's exciting, Mary Jane. It really <laughs> is in a lot of ways. I'm serious. I mean, you could not have found a better person to enjoy and understand that for the first time we're in, in our series, you're talking about darkness as a way to kind of lead towards that. In my, my my life, it leads me actually to the light. I can actually see the light because I've acknowledged very deeply the darkness. And I think that really echoes what I was saying about suffering, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, as a nurse, I have found that 
certain images just kind of haunt me and stay with me. And that was one. I mean, there's a series. And then until I write about them, I'm really carrying them in a kind of burden. Mm. Uh, And then when I find a way to put it in a poem or a nonfiction essay or something, it doesn't, it makes no sense to me. Like, right, that girl haunted me for a really long time. And, um, but once I wrote that poem, I felt like it it could be released because those extreme, like people in that kind of extremity, I feel like the, the world has an obligation to see it and acknowledge it. Um, as well as the fact that this happened in like one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. Mm. And it was a thing that like suffering went on there every single day. But it was when this thing happened that people kind of took notice of this location. Right. So just carrying that, I agree, is a way then to the light because you go, okay, I think I've made sense of this or I think I understand at least the process of documenting it mm-hmm. um, as a witness or, you know, uh, and, and in particular, the thing that I really struggled with when I was an emergency room nurse was people's clothes that they came in. And I'm like, when they picked out this outfit this morning, they had no idea. You know, <laughs> wow. that, right, like right. really, truly, because like on oncology and in when I worked in AIDS, whatever people had, they were sanitized, right? They were in a hospital bed. You know, you had your team around you. But in the emergency room, like people come in in their little outfits that like they loved or cared about when they got dressed that morning. And for me, it was just, it was actually too much like to stay there very long. I only did it for like a year. Right, um, right. And, I and, am going to introduce Mary Jane right now. It's Mary Jane Nealon. She's a writer. Her book that she wrote a memoir called Beautiful Unbroken, One Nurse's Story. She's written a lot of poetry. Um, she was a nurse for 40 years and um, talks about her struggles during the AIDS epidemic. And writes about that. She re- refers herself to be retired, but she's never retired. <laughs> she just sort of moved on to other things. And one of the things we're going to talk about is that you're going to become a full-time writer. You're leaving, you've left nursing, sort of done some consulting, and now going to go on to writing. Um, Mary Jane and I have worked on a project for about two years. Uh, Mary Jane is one of the few people who knows how to really get mad at me every once in a while. And she gets her Irish up, I guess, right? Yeah. And, uh, Pretty so, much every um, time we talk. <laughs> so, um, but we had we had an amazing collaboration. At some point, we're hoping to sell this project and get it, you know, done it, get it done in book form. And, um, and it was it was amazing working with Mary Jane in that she's just a wonderful interviewer and a wonderful writer. So do we miss anything, Mary Jane? Oh no, thank you, Ed. I, I, I work in forty five years though. So forty five years as a nurse. Yeah. Wow. Or health in healthcare. In yeah. healthcare. Got yeah. it. So you're going to become a full time writer. What's what do you think that's going to be like for you? I don't know. You know, right before I got on, I prepared the 
like I need to stop working as soon as possible to my biggest contract as a consultant. And I just said, like, I have an idea for a transition. I can't do this anymore. Uh, I have so many projects that for years I told myself, well, if I just had time. And but I realize I've set up my world to not have time kind of on purpose, I think, on mm-hmm. some level. And time clutter, time clutter, time clutter. And, uh, you know, my family's life expectancy is like 77, 78. Every once in a while, somebody hits 80 and people go crazy. You know, like, how long will she live now? Like, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, but I just inherited a very significant thing from this person who was not related to us. And it feels like a miracle uh, in my life that now I don't even really have to work at all. And I never thought that would happen. My parents didn't have two cents. So um, so now I'm like, if I keep working, then I'm intentionally avoiding these projects. Right. So one is to write about my father, who was the most important person in my life. Mm-hmm. Um. I have three poetry manuscripts that I have not even sent out uh, and probably 400 pages of other kinds of prose. Wow. So I really need end my project with Ed and Tamara. So there's so much that I've kept telling myself I just had time. And now I, I see that I have kind of engineered a conflict to that time whether it's fear of failure on some deep level or, you know, a a fear that I won't apply the same work ethic to that work. And maybe you don't have, but also maybe, you know, I I don't offer any solutions, but I'm hearing, you know, it it seems like, you know, and you wouldn't necessarily, um, one doesn't have to interpret one former life to a future life. Hmm. You know, and it doesn't have to have the same conditions. I actually told Ed, let's not coach. And here you go, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) I am sorry, Ed. Ed, I apologize profusely to you. I am completely inconsistent. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, no, because I just, from the person that wrote those, that poem and that poetry, I feel like. First of all, I just thought about Joseph Campbell when you talked about, so he would say, he said, life is suffering with moments of bliss. You oh, know? I didn't yeah. know that. And that's a very core Buddhist, Buddhist principle, that life is suffering and navigating this world in this physical body is painful. We're in contact, like sensory, with everything, you know? And sometimes that suit, the, the human suit, is really, you know, it can be raw, you know. Uh, so I was going to take actually thing. a different quote, which oh, was from Joseph Campbell. No, from from Cheryl Strayed, from who wrote Wild, said, "Don't lose your joy over a story that isn't true anymore." So we always get to start our new our stories from where we are, not from where we have been at times. We could change that story, sure. Um, sure. And but I think. A lot of times, like for me, like starting my own projects, like doing this project with you was not the fear of failure, but 
you like saying, well, now I have nothing to do. Am I actually going to do my own project or not? Yeah. Uh, and but I, I can I just say how excited I am about what you said, Leighton, because I think one of the things about when I was young, I my father said, you have to have a job where they'll need you in a war or a depression. <laughs> and that was very Irish, right? Like my right. whole family are from Ireland. We lost tons of people in the famine. The people that came here to this country were like, be a cop or a firefighter. They can never fire you. And right. then if you were a woman, be a nurse or a teacher, same thing. So I, but there was this work ethic where I would say, oh, I'm so tired. And I really wanted to go to Germany. And my father would say, how many jobs do you have? Just one, you know, because he always worked two jobs. And then, um, and so I do think like my, my writing life has been really precious. And that time has felt really special. And when you said that, I was like, maybe I'm afraid I'm going to apply that work ethic where it's right. like chore instead of joy. Right. So now that excites me to think about, I can make it look different. Uh, yeah, from the you know, you know I, something, I, and I want to say this then, to, and then ask, add a question is um, one of the things you said inspired, really inspired me about, Oh, when we don't, when we're not creative in our, for ourselves, we're 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 afraid of a relationship with ourselves, you know. Especially you were talking about the human condition, right? Like this fear of this relationship with myself. Like the time that you're you know helping other people, it couldn't be more classically opposite. The, here's this person mangled physically that I can do, but now it's this person <laughs> that I've got to like me, who is who, what you know I've got to take care of me. So I mean, I think self care and creativity. Are hand in hand mm. yeah and wow. how i mean how do you what's your self-care practice like how do you know when you're consciously okay you're in i'm in my way let me unlock it oh uh, for me it's really simple just take go take the camera outside and take a walk gotcha and just you know just like Maybe it'll get a little better. Maybe it'll, it'll always get a little better. And sometimes, you know, really cool things happen. But so for me, it's just a practice of taking a walk and taking my camera out. And sometimes I don't even take it out of the bag. And sometimes I do. And, but just starting to practice of walking. So. Yeah. When I, when I walk on his property, it was really, it was, it, it helped. It was a good, it was a good evening. Yeah. Yeah, but but I'll do it in New York City too. You know, no, I'm just saying I, I just I just remember that as a good memory with you. Yeah, yeah. What do you What do you do, Layton? Um, for my practice. Yeah, I after years and years of be, being addicted to getting up and being like my my life is over. It's horrible. Blah 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 blah. I picked up um write um morning pages again. So I will write three pages of uh, stream of consciousness and I will like the elephant is floating in the air. I hate myself. <laughs> you know? His writing is unbelievably <laughs> You know, beautiful. like, you know, the bed is not going to be made up. Who am I kidding? I'm going to make this bed up. You know, and then I just ramble and I get 
And I let and I allow all those dark things that flash into my head. And actually, the, it's interesting. The darker, the more I write, the less dark the writing is uh, towards myself specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wrote a poem recently, and I think what you said, Ed, about going out, when I I had a fellowship that was uh, a year, all you had to do was leave the country. They deposited money in your checking account every three months, and all, and you just couldn't come back. So you could go anywhere, you just couldn't come back to the country. So I went to Ireland and New Zealand, where I had places to stay. And I was on the Irish Sea in New Zealand and near the ocean in, uh, I mean, in Ireland, I was on the Irish Sea and near the ocean in New Zealand. And I went out every single day. And that's when I wrote my memoir. I would just come back from being outside and just write, write, write. Uh, so I could totally see how that would work. But the other thing I was thinking of is I think for my transition, I really need to meditate because I was, I wrote a poem a couple of weeks ago where there was a line in there that said, you know, I find tending to the dead reassuring, uh, peaceful even. And, you know, then go through just like a list of peaceful things like fresh squeezed orange juice and I want a trash can with a foot pedal. And, you know, it just ends with me like tossing away this bird that had died. And I think when I, I had worry about being judged about that, but it feels so true to me because the body just feels like this vehicle that ultimately fails us, but that we can like there's magic and mystery in in caring for people after death. I always love the ritual of postmortem care, of washing a body and removing tubes because it felt like really sacred time to me. Wow. And if I had a staff member working with me who was saying like, did you get a lotto ticket? The lotto's up. I'd say, please leave the room. You know, right. I'll do this by myself. Um, because I always- Sacred space sacred space and so you know but but as far as i know once i leave this body i can't like write a book of essays <laughs> I, and mary jane in, in your writing and in your life you have a lot of spirituality in it and even though i know you're not a practicing catholic or yeah, no dogma no dogma but I actually heard you say something that was really interesting a few weeks uh, the other day on a, on a podcast, and you said, "Well, I sort of when I want to get cleansed, I'm not sure how you put it. You really like putting yourself in the river and in water, and that's a big practice for you." And I'm thinking, "Wow, she doesn't realize she's going through a baptism each time." No. <laughs> Uh, any any body of water it i think what it is is tying to the time before birth ah connecting to the like the spirit that we came from mm -hmm. uh, more than baptism uh you know organized religion terrifies me i i don't uh, i don't judge anybody who believes in it but uh i feel like it's just a mechanism for danger <laughs> you know, yeah it, has it certainly has been used that way it's been it certainly has been exploited yeah of course 
Um, so the but so so wait a minute. Um, I just I completely lost track of some of a thought. I can't believe it. Uh, no, it's it's really. So you're you're saying that your 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 girl with the strawberry paisley skirt. Let's just go back for one moment. <clears throat> you you talked about on um your practice of creativity. So how would you outline um is is like with the poetry and having witnessed what was what, what you know, you're saying a lot of very rich stuff that I don't think a lot of people talk about. The care of the body post-mortem as a way of cleansing to prepare to to move forward then you're able to witness what is sheer gore and disaster of the mangled body and also need to unburden it when it's in that state so like for you is there is there one way towards that creative act of like you one way you unburden by by letting it go like something that's kind of made an imprint is there are there other things are there other ways that you know like you you took your water and then you you wrote about your memoir or you your walk. What, what other, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I mentioned this on this other podcast, so I don't want to repeat myself too much. But the one of the most powerful things that happened to me when I was my brother died of cancer. And then I while he was dying of cancer at Sloan Kettering in New York, I took a job there like it was ridiculous. Somebody should have been like, this may be a boundary issue but <laughs> I but I didn't you know and I that's when I really started working with young people with catastrophic illness and one night I had to run a urine sample down to the lab and it was like 10 o'clock at night everything was pretty much shut down and Sloan Kettering doesn't really do emergencies unless it's a young person with like a catastrophic diagnosis and then they open things up so I'm running down this hall and all of a sudden I see this beautiful young girl from the back with like this cascading brown hair and her arms are out like this in front of a CAT scan machine. Now I know immediately it's catastrophic or she wouldn't be here at 10 o'clock at night. She still has her hair. So she's just finding out. And I literally carried that image with me from 1977 until 2000. Mm. And I, I would, I was trying to find something to juxtapose it, something to help me understand what had, like, it took my breath away when I saw her. And I, so I would mentally sit down and try to write about it and think maybe it was my brother. Maybe it's all young people made nothing felt right. And then in 2000, I was in North Carolina and a friend of mine who's a Buddhist monk started telling me the story that about this thing he experienced when he was a child. And he said, I was really haunted because from my bedroom window, I saw a dog in the alley and I couldn't tell if the dog was sleeping or had died. And it, and I said to him, excuse me, just a minute. <laughs> and I literally ran to this room where there was a computer and I typed, human-headed bull below empty space. And then <laughs> I wrote this poem in like two minutes, like as fast as I could type. I wasn't thinking about it. And then like 
two months later, I entered it in a contest. It won this contest. Wow. Like I never edited a word of it. And people were like, oh, how long did it take you to write that poem? And I'm like, 23 years. <laughs> because it was doing the work, right? It was just trying to find its partner in the world that where I could understand it first and then explain it. So how many of those kind of images do you have inside you that are waiting to get out when you go full-time creative? You know, I would say the biggest number of images that I'm still carrying around are um, from the AIDS epidemic. And I have written about the epidemic, but in just the last few weeks, I've written three poems about that time. There's something about COVID that kind of stirred it up. Uh, something about monkeypox that scares me, you know, the kind of judgment and stigma of a community again. And um, I had- It's a- not even a fucking STD, excuse my language. Oh, I know. It's like- <laughs> don't, don't, don't even start. I'm getting, my, I'm getting my one of two tomorrow morning. So yeah, I get it. I get yeah, it. it just yeah. infuriates me. I'm like, stop it. But yeah, but I had a dream uh, and I, it's the time in my life that I still cannot easily talk about without crying. And so I pay attention to that. Right. Undone work. But when I worked in research, we took photos of people with KS and every week in their underwear like this and then turned around in the back. Very vulnerable position. And then you'd count the lesions. And of course, in the beginning, I mean, I did the AZT placebo trial. There were no, there were no, uh, nobody was getting better. And the lesions just grew and grew and grew. So I had a dream the other night that I went into a theater and there was a man sitting at the bottom of the theater and there were no um, chairs or aisles. And so it was really scary because the floor was tilted. And I knew somehow that he had all those Polaroids in this box. And I've always worried about what happened to them. Like, did they just get destroyed? It felt really wrong if they did. And um, so I make my way down to him and I said, can I please have those? And he said, uh, oh, well, you know, and he asked me a question and I just started saying all their names and all their names came back to me. Wow. Dream. And then he said, oh, they're all alive. And then he opened the curtain and they were all standing there without a blemish. And I said to myself in the dream, what do I do now with all this joyous time? Wow. Because that sense of, oh, what would I have felt about the world? If I hadn't seen that, even though I feel really blessed to have been on that journey, it just suddenly, and it also wasn't just me. What would have happened if all of that life had continued in its partners and in its, right? Yeah. So I think that is the first thing that I'm going to tackle when I start writing is really just trying to get memories down. Even if I don't, uh, you know, it's like the first person who did a biohazard tattoo, mm-hmm. you know, so he could just be out on the dance floor and not worry about disclosure. 
right, uh, right, you right, know, right. Uh, just lots of things like now that. you keep all these memories inside you or are they are they written down somewhere just no well they're mostly they're mostly in me i mean they get written down like when they get written down but right. there's always, yeah. there's always more i mean 44 years 45 yeah, yeah. right 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 a lot you know it's a lot well i think i think well i just want to affirm for you that i i've got your back because i think um there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of, uh, there can be a lot of shame associated with discussing things that appear to, to those people that are not evolved, that you're being negative <laughs> when you're not, you know what I mean? Like you're just, like the human condition as you know, um, is, um, it's feeling and touching and being a part of the world. And it has, feel, I think, I think, I mean, you, you're making a proposition where you're saying, I'm going to be completely present for this lifetime. You know, I'm going to let, you know, and, and also just like the, the healer part. I, I want to talk about this kind of healer part of you. And I'm just wondering, I never thought of as nurse as a, or a doctor as a healer, because I've had my own kind of experiences, you know, with certain administrative types, you know, not everybody's a Mary Jane Nealon. So there's a lot of people that are just like, you know, it's a wheel, you know, and I've, I've felt that um, in the healthcare system. So I, I, I think, the, and also I think it's a really beautiful, interesting concept of, of that taking that, what was that period? You know, I came into my sexuality as a queer man, um, during a time when, you know, the proposition was to use a condom even for oral sex. I, I came in, I'm, I, I mean, I was like, you know, well, why would you even bother? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I came out and I, I was 18 in 1988. And that's what they were telling us, Ed. Right. I came out at the time when if, you know, you know, wrap it up from head to toe. Right. And I just thought, and, and you know what? Most of us just said, fuck it. To be honest, because the truth is, is that we, we, we were, we needed to touch and feel each other. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm really taken by this, this, you know, and I don't, I hear stories about this period of time where you're visiting three people in the hospital at the same time, you know, one hospital and you've got three friends that might be all passing from um, AIDS at that time. So um, I'm happy that we, the, that the, the, whatever communities that can can relate to that will have you your you will have your voice and your words to kind of kind of tackle and through they in that way they can deal with it as well well and then in the evening you'd go see people in the hospital and then you'd go to a wake at night and then you know or two wakes like the there was that place on madison and 80 oh yes and like, or like, something it was it was the only place that would let you that would embalm people in the beginning. I'm just blanking on the name of the funeral home, but and you'd go in the evening and you'd be like surrounded by research nurses and doctors because it was the one thing you could do would be to go to acknowledge that you had completely failed them. Right. I mean, um, so I'm just trying to remember the funeral home, but uh, anyway. Um, yeah, no, I, I, it was funny because I lived in, I lived in the you know block two blocks from the Castro in San Francisco from 1978 to like 1982. Oh and wow! Just, 
And uh, and I was the only straight guy who worked in in a company of about 30 people. And just to see the devastation that was, was just like, wow. At the very beginning, Ed. Yeah, you know, and and supposedly patient zero lived in the, you know, was from the Castro and, and just, and, you know, I had a few friends. I had one guy I worked with very closely who passed away. You know, he's one of the first victims of AIDS and he a very funny guy, you know, and uh, John, and it was at, at the color lab that we're at. And so if you want to read about this, read Beautiful on Broken. I'm just going to give you a little plug on this. It's it just an amazing Well, I mean, the the powerful thing in my life, right, was I made a commitment to stay in that work for a long time. And then at some point it left like the little nice Sloan Kettering, Cornell, everybody has insurance, everybody works for Valentino to the street. Right. And I went and worked in the Bowery and in a homeless shelter for men with AIDS Three of those men are still in touch with me, found me on Facebook. Uh, But they would have died because they were men of color whose family had talked to them about Tuskegee and all sorts of mistrust. Right. They were not trusting viral load tests or CD4 tests because they were saying to me, like the man... The man wants to take my benefits away. So he's going to find out my viral load's undetectable and say, I'm not sick anymore. And I'd be like, oh, my God. You know, so we did a lot of work with poets um, from the East Village, a playwright. I just had people come in and do art with them to build trust because I thought, I, nothing I can say about medicine is going to break through. People are going to want to really reconsider because they want to live. And this one guy in particular, like, I love him. And he is DJ Mr. Right. And, um, you know, does DJing from his basement. But during the day, he works with insurance claims for people with HIV. And he was, he spent an hour one night trying to convince me how much I would like crack if I would (laughs) just try crack. Because it was like a harm reduction facility. So lots of people were still using. And I'd be like, I don't, yeah, no, I'm not going to ever try crack. Like, you know, so now he's been, you know, in recovery for since 1995 or 96 and had completely changed his life. So, I felt like an obligation to to not stay in like the ivory tower with insured people when you had people dying in much greater numbers because they were disenfranchised from that. Right. So I still feel strongly about, and we saw that in COVID, which is the other thing, yes. right? The healthcare disparities and yeah, yeah. No, I had. I mean, I um. It was it was a little difficult. Um, Ed, 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 I don't know what your relationship was like with 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 losing people, but we lost like five people. And 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 a lot of people that I know who are not 
African of, from the diaspora or brown, they didn't have that similar story. They might have known someone who knew someone, but it didn't touch. Like my uncle died within the same month, mm. within the March of 2020. So I can under I, I I totally get what you're saying. So how does that? How, let me ask you a question. Like you know, um, being a woman, like what you. So you're be, being a white woman, right? Who um, I, I don't know what 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 you what, where you where your sexuality lies. What what drew you to that particular? You know what what around the race? What what it was just like. This is obviously wrong. I need to be a part of the solution. What? Where's? Where do you come at it from? So you know where that came from. I was writing uh, for a pharmaceutical advertising company for five weeks. Five weeks. I took home fifteen thousand dollars. It was one project took me about two and a half hours, and they were like, "No, you have to bill sixty hours because that's what Bristol Myers Squibb will pay." <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is so dirty, you know? Right. And so I was looking at the want ads in the New York Times one day, and it said, uh, nurse case manager for 315 Bowery. Well, I knew that was where CBGB's was, right? It's the shelter above CBGB's. $40,000. I mean, this was when my old job was paying like six figures. Right. So I thought, well, I've already made 15000 Like, I can live on 55000 so I went into my boss and I said, I'm not going to, I'm going to finish this current paper and then I'm done. And he's like, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go work at the Bowery. I hadn't even applied for the job yet. And you but knew you we were getting that job. Well, I was like, cause they're going to be astounded when I apply. Right? Right, right, right. Well, it was literally, I was to use your words, the only white woman. <laughs> and I would basically come in and the security guards on each floor would start singing, I'm in love with Mary Jane. And that's how they would know I was up there. But for me, it was just because I was there and I was respectful, right? That's all it took. Like people would try to play games with me. And, you know, one night there were like three little mice and this guy was like, the man, the white man has sent rats. To, I was like, they're mice. Like, I'm not going to. They're not rats. They're right. not rats. Uh. You know, they're mice. But, um, but it's, it was in my whole career, it was the time I felt most blessed um, to really have that door open. Like, I felt like I had, if I just showed up every day, took a lot of grief you know this one guy tried to kill himself and i called 911 and saved his life well he decided then that he wasn't going to talk to me so i'd be like hey g and he'd be like pff, pff. and all the other guys would watch and so finally one day i was like hey so forgive me for saving your life like i just went, i just went off like if you were just real with people i'm like this is exhausting like I should have just let you go, but, um, <laughs> but that, you know, just being real and being respectful and that then I got the, the beauty of people really sharing some really difficult things in their life and letting me in as like a partner to, you know, I don't know. 
And, and writing about it, does that give you some kind of completion? What, what is writing doing for you? Because I mean, that's what we're talking about is the creative process. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's two ways. I think there's the individual and then there's the systems. So like when you asked me is nursing creative, I retired as the director of innovation. Mm. And part of my job was to say this person's had this experience because this is broken how can we fix it at least for this community and so i think that i think listening to people's stories and then thinking about like why is this happening over and over and over again and where can what could we do that would be creative that would change the system so a simple example is that people in foster care we had we started a project called kelp kindness elegance and love project based on this guy at Mayo Clinic who said the healthcare system I envision is one of kindness, elegance, and love. And we found in Missoula, children being put into foster care were often moved from foster care into adoption. Foster parents got tons of help and support that did not exist for the biological parents. So I said, no, 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 let's, I had 32 different partners within a month and a half, county attorneys, prosecutors, child welfare people, psychiatrists. And we we tried to do this project. And what became really clear to us is every single person who got refer referred to us, biological parent who'd lost their child, had been a foster child. Wow. So now in our healthcare system, if you're a new patient, you are asked, were you ever touched by the foster care system? Because we know we have to make sure that we help keep your family intact and do what we can before you lose custody. Right, right, so, right. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's that to me, that's like not just the microscopic, but yeah, that, that, that's creativity, creativity using to be to like have dynamic solution, you know, like to think about like patterns and unbreaking them and, you know, and, and creating and burying in in other practices the solutions that last longer you know and just and more sustainable so that is a very yeah i mean that's yeah. that's highly creative that's highly creative so you go so you see yourself as going from one creative field to another creative field and yeah. it's just an extension so you're already you've already been a full-time creative your whole life then <laughs> exactly. The, the, the base of this interview is that you were someone who was going to become full-time creative. You're just moving into a different creative. Hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty clear to me. Uh, you know, I, it's so funny listening to Mary Jane do interviews for a long time for the last two years. Her nursing every once in a while comes in there. If someone's really in pain. Like my instinct is let it go, you know. Let's hear what, what they got. By that? What do you mean by that? Letting? What do you mean your instinct? Let's hear what. Let's hear what the what the what they're gonna say. Okay. And Mary Jane wants to all have this. Oh, I need to fix this. You know, I feel that pain in a really deep way, and you can see it just on her face. And she'll she'll just say, "Oh, it's gonna be okay." You know, <laughs> it, it, it's you know, it's gonna be okay. And she'll and that healing part of her. Right, will come right in the interview, and and once I said to Mary Jane, I said, you know what, 
I'll never know what they said we're going to say next. Yeah, it's like, why did you, why didn't you just let them keep going? But it's hard. Yeah. Hard and, to do. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, Clarissa, I think. Was that her name? Yeah. And just talking about what it was like. I can't wait to, did you, did you write about that one yet? I thought no, that was such about, a great interview. About how if her children, what would happen to her children if she died? Yeah, like we yeah. never get to see her and, and they wouldn't get to know her and she would just be this memory. Yeah, and I was like, oh, you know, I was like, and I started talking about you, like, you can see, free, see free verbal memory. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you were in How are you doing? Right, right. Amazing. Right. So, do you believe in, do you, do you um, I know you don't, don't no, no religion. What about archetypes? Uh, well, I wouldn't say no religion. You know, the Sogu Rinpoche, who wrote the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Okay. During the AIDS epidemic, I went to see him in New York, and I was really burnt out and traumatized. And a friend of mine dragged me to this discussion with him. And I sat through it, and I was like, I have to go home. I'm exhausted. And my friend's like, no, no, no. I want you to meet Sogol. I know him from Santa Barbara, <laughs> like, whatever. So she's dragging me up there, and I'm, like, literally broken down. And she goes, Sogol, this is my friend Mary Jane. She works with people with AIDS. And he came over to me, and he literally just held my hands in his hands, looked at me for, like, a minute, and then went like that. And then my friend's like, I got you his book. And I'm like, great. Now it's like nine o'clock at night. I just want to go home. I take the book. I go home. I go to bed. I had two of the most extraordinary dreams I've ever had in my life. And they were like narrated, right? And I woke up in the morning and I remembered the narration. And I started writing it down. I called my friend and I said, oh my God, the most extraordinary thing. I, we always say Jungian alert. Like I'm like, listen to this dream. And she goes, oh, Sogol gave you those. They're both in the book. Wow. And I swear to God, they are both in the book. And so at that moment, I thought, I absolutely believe in a higher power, a higher power, whatever higher power. it is. Because so, of yeah, the difference between religious, being religious and spiritual, I guess. Right. Yeah. When, when I so, was young, my mother used to say, remember, a priest is just a man. She would say that to me all the time. So I always saw like organized religion as just like obstructing my direct engagement. Right, 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 right. So Layden, like yeah. Mary Jane expressed that she has spirituality when she writes in, in human condition. I when I my spirituality comes out just in meditation or photography at times and just creating stuff. And even just in it's trying to inspire other young photographers. What's your what gets you going in the, during the day? You're talking about in a very particular way. Yeah, um, like um, you know what flashed into my head? Um, I hadn't seen the night sky since COVID, so I was upstate New York um uh two weeks ago, and at about two o'clock in the morning, like I just went outside on the deck, no lights out on the deck in my friend's house up in Germantown. And I looked at the stars and that's the one place that when I'm feeling very physical and very human, that if I look into the blackness of the sky with those light dots, I'm like, yes, thank you. I, I'm in part of something much greater and bigger than myself. 
That's mm-hmm. when I can get. But to say that I, I, my, my brain is a bit of an echo chamber, so I need that drastic environmental change. I'm such a city boy. So I was gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm such a city kid. You know, I think all three of us are city people. Yeah, we're city, and, I, and and it's and I've and I've started to realize that it's um, I have to get those breaks. Your your New Zealand, your island trips. I need to. I need to spend much more time outside of the outside of my um my habits in the city more more and connect with nature. Yeah. You yeah. know. And Mary my Jane. Bedroom, oh sorry. Yeah, so well, my bedroom faced the World Trade Center, as you know, Ed, on the Jersey City side. I was right above the ferry in one of those buildings. And a couple nights after the towers fell, I woke up and I was like, oh, now what? Now what? What is this light? Because I thought it was like a searchlight from a plane or something. It was the moon. Wow. <laughs> and then I was like, I can't live here anymore. I have to, like, where I'm like, what is that? You know? Wow. So, you know, it's funny. It was always eclipsed by the building and the way the way it just arced. It just never, yeah. you just never had a view of it. Doing never had a view thing. of it. Yeah. And what's amazing is I know all the, you know, Mary Jane has a, a dad story, just so many different stories about veterans and and you have years of writing in front of you. We hope. <laughs> well, we're, we're, I'm sure. And uh, so what are the, you think the challenges of getting all these stories of going full time writing? You, yeah, I I do think I'm going to need some kind of structure, you know, uh, but I I want to work something like the pool or some external thing, a walk with the dogs first. Uh, I said walk with the dogs. They're both like, nope. <laughs> um, <laughs> WLK with the D-O-G's. I know. I, I got mine here. She's passed out. Yeah. yeah. But um I think it's going to be, I'm going to have to be methodical and be like, this is a poetry day. You know, this is a nonfiction day. Like I am going to have to do that around revising work that I already have. Mm -hmm. And then maybe give myself like the ability if I feel pulled to new work to just do the new work and stop the other organizing. But Right, but I love what you said about starting your day walking, you know, just finding a practice that gets your day started to sit in front of a blank page. I don't have that issue. I'm just reinterpreting the world through a camera. I go like this for a living, you know? And- I almost never just sit in front of a blank page, though. What I do, like, this is a really great book I'm reading now, mm-hmm. Philip B. Williams' Mutiny. Like, I'll just pick and say uh like he has this i've looked at this before when you were mine though not mine at all permanently just a body for loneliness and then that poem is called hunter then i might just type when you were mine though not mine at all permanently and then keep writing and Mm. then at the end i'll go back and either take that line away or i'll make it like an epigram 
Oh wow. my God! Yes. You have you have a how-to book in you too. I would say it's not a how-to book. It's sort of an inspiration, looking for yeah, inspiration, absolutely, in other places and using people who inspired you to start inspiring yourself, almost like a mentor in a way. I do have a book called um, "Death a Primer." <laughs> and um, it's and I have 38 chapters outlined and it's really funny, like uh, what to expect when you're expecting to die. And then um, uh, there will be blood, uh, you know, stuff about shit. I don't know a person who really deals with a significant illness that doesn't shit in their pants. Right. And it's never bothered me. It's never wow. bothered me. And I, like every once in a while, I say that to somebody and I realize, oh, I don't think everybody thinks that way. But I do think people are so overwhelmed by the bodily decline that they run to the hospital or the emergency room and then they wind up not having the death they really wanted, which was to be at home. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, so we can be funny and compassionate and give people a guidebook for what to expect. You know, obviously not if there's a car wreck or something, but if you're dealing with a long illness that's going to end in death and your palliative care hospice, these are the kinds of things that somebody should tell you about. Yeah, I, I think it's how I completely agree with you. I think, uh, you know, it's funny. I just went through, not funny. I just went through the the death of my sister-in-law and my wife's sister. And we did talk about that. And I said to Lauren, if I get to that point, hire a nurse. <laughs> so just spend all our money. Just if you have to clean up after me that way, do not do that. I'm, oh, you know, that's that was your line in the sand. That's not where you. What that's you, what was my line in the sand. And I said, I, I don't want you to do this. You know. Yeah. And it, and it came up because this is you know this happened three weeks ago, and mm -hmm. you know the the Susie's husband dealt with that. You know, and he was they would he, he was, that wasn't his line all. in the sand. That wasn't his line in the sand. Yeah, I don't know if um. I have anybody in my life that I that I'm that intimate with or share that love that that would that 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 would require. Um, um, and I don't know how much of a healing nature I am to with, with my friends. I don't know. That's why I was asking about archetypes. Oh, I think you're a healing person. Like you're, I think, you're, no, 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 no. What, no, no, and hey, what, no, you got to take a time out for a second, buddy. So the he he has taught me so much about vulnerability in terms of my own vulnerability. So that's you are amazing that you just put your stuff out there and you just say what pisses you off, what makes you happy, what you know, what your fears are. Almost better than anybody I've ever met in a lot of ways, you know. And so I learned more about and then I started sharing my stories with you and and Lane will say to me. Oh, I never heard you say that before. Oh, I never heard you. How many times has that happened when you say that? Yeah, no, and because you're, you're that revealing. From, that's stuff that I've learned from you, you know, hanging out with you. That's okay to say that stuff. Well, yeah, okay, fair enough. You're right. I, I think I was talking about a very specific thing that I've also had fears around, which is that intimacy um, and the vulnerability of cleaning someone's body 
when they're feeling vulnerable as well. You're right. I am. I do trust myself that I am. I do have a healer. I am a healer. Um, there's another per, there's another type of healer who can wash a body and wash people and 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 not shame them for being where they're at physically. And I get I guess I, that's where my own line in my sand for me, I get fearful around that that level of fragility. I don't love to see people that I love very much sick and it really, really, really hurts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it really, really, really hurts. I think, you know, I've talked to a psychiatrist about this for the book, the healthcare book I wanted to write. And I, I wanted to write that before COVID. And when COVID came, I was like, oh, nobody's going to want a healthcare book. But we talked about how shame exists for the person who's suffering and for the person who's caretaking sometimes. And yeah. I had a poem really early in my life that uh, got published in the Paris Review that's had the line something like all body fluids are beautiful, even mucus, even shit. And I meant it. I meant it. Like to me, it's just another part of like the things between our spirits. Right. Yeah. And uh, I've said this for years and years, but I believe it with my whole heart and soul. Like one of the mistakes we make as a culture is we say um, for baptism, christenings, uh, graduations, weddings, we say, we request the honor of your presence at, and we decide who we want to share those moments with, but we don't do it around failures of the body. And I also think people need to laugh more about how ridiculous and horrible the body is when it starts to fail us. You know, my father was like a big, tough Irish cop and really believed in service. Or he said, a life without service has no value. So I never saw his body, you know, and he was living with me when he was dying of cancer. And he's like, oh, mayor, oh, oh, like he wasn't going to make it to the bathroom. And so I literally am like pushing him through, you know, like with the walker. We're like, go, 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 go. And I get him in front of the toilet and I pull his pants down. He like shits everywhere. And, and he's like <laughs> holding on to my shoulders. Aww. And he goes, well, who would have thought we'd end up here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you have... So you have completely traits in the DNA that got got transferred. Exactly. And we just laughed and laughed and laughed. And I do think it's pretty uh, common among Irish people. Like, I don't know. I mean, Irish people, we talked about death all the time, all the time at the dinner table, you know, did that get, did that that scare you when you, or you, or or no, we had like my grandmother, my great aunt, they die. I got in bed with my great aunt when she was in a coma, like night after night, I just curled up with her. Like that sense that this is natural. My personal experience as a African Caribbean from people from Trinidad, that African part of our ancestry that comes there's like somehow, and I think it's totally ridiculous. Somehow, the fact that someone's dying has come to us as a surprise to everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like some, no, no, no. And I'm Ed, 
you don't know what I've, I've been I've been kind of sprinkling right. one I've been kind of sharing a little bit but it is so shocking to me like throwing yourself down on the floor and carrying on and oh, I mean yeah. person was like 85 it's like I don't I gotta tell you, I think that's a pretty robust life. You know, like I don't know if we need to be wailing because they died of natural causes. I'm not <laughs> sure. Well, but the, the, some of those things are just cultural, though. Yeah, you know, but what, what and, happens and, is that no, but what what happens though for me is that I feel overly taxed from something that feels that could be help, dealt with naturally. That's my controlling stuff. Though. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Because, like when I see that, someone really give it up for, you know, someone who passed away. I'm saying, man, that's how it should be done. You know? yeah. And no, I'm thinking right. and we, what we happens in our, in my culture is a little sniffle, sniffle, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, 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 oh, and, and you know, what am I going to do now? So oh. the, well, you know, you know, Tim Russert from meet the press. Yes. God rest his soul. Um, I collapsed a couple of years ago from dehydration. It was like three years ago. I'd worked 12 hours at the clinic, had a Coke Zero with caffeine. So basically I had like no fluids for 12 hours, no food for 12 hours. I come home and I'm cutting up chicken for my dogs. Like I didn't even stop and sit down and have a glass of water. So I'm like cutting up chicken and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, 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 anyway, I go down. And as I'm going down, I thought, oh, I wonder if this is how Tim Russert died. And then I looked at the dogs and I go, I wonder if they're going to eat me. But like, I had no fear. And then I didn't. Thank God I didn't die. And, um, you know, crawled to a chair and called a friend and we went to the emergency room and, and I was just dehydrated. Of course, they did every kind of workup. But um, but. I was really both reassured and disappointed, like that that was the experience. And I said to my doctor, you know, I'm a poet. I thought I would have had like a really deep thought. And she said, Listen, don't I'm worry, almost, you'll I, have another chance. Uh, yeah, maybe it just wasn't my time, but I had spinal meningitis, got paralyzed, almost died. And I thought I was like fighting like hell. And I guess until you're ready to give it up. You know, you're not going to see that whatever you were it is. Conscious, you were conscious of your fight? I was conscious that when I was conscious <laughs> that, right, that I, you, that were, I you wanted, were meant to stay. That I, and I was unconscious for a while. But when I was conscious, I was like, let's get, the, let's, like, let, I was thinking about photography. Mm. I was thinking about the things I wanted to do next in photography. Mm. And Finally, 11 days later, when I got out of the hospital, I'm such a crazy person that I like, I didn't even tell this client of mine that I was sick and, and dying in bed. I'd lost 40 pounds, you know, through spinal meningitis. And I showed up at the job and he's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've had done like, one eye was paralyzed. Oh my God. Talk about work ethic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I showed up. And I showed up, and, and he's like, and I'm looking at him, and like, you know, well, this is what I do, you know? And he's like, I think, are you okay? <laughs> it, it went fine. But, yeah, I, I don't think I was ready, because I think I saw something dark, and I was, like, running away. I was running toward the, the light of life, as opposed to I was not ready to go, apparently. And uh, 
I want to, you know, we're winding this up and I want to talk just about your creativity and just about, and we've talked about a lot of your career, but what are you going to be writing about? Like, what is your process going to look like going in the future? You know, now that you're going to be doing this full time, you know the things you're going to write about, you're just going to let it come to you. No, I think the I think the first thing I would do is, like I said, I have these poetry manuscripts that I haven't even sent out. And I do have somebody who's a really wonderful poet who's reading my current one. But I have a, a serial killer um, poetry manuscript called Four Darks in Red after the Rothko painting. And it's like the killer, the girls, the detective. It's just kind of like it was a fun thing to do. And I I wrote that like 15 years ago and it's just sitting in a drawer. So I think what I'm going to do is actually just get those things sent out. And right. then they have their job. And then I'm going to look at my prose because I have a lot of prose about my father. I have prose about nursing. I have prose about love. And I I do have a poetry manuscript just about my old boyfriend who is, you know, was in a car wreck and um, just brain fried, you know, not necessarily dead, but... Um, but I do think there's, for me internally, I'm just going to say this, Leighton, because I feel like you've been really open. You know, I have spent a lot of my life people thinking I was a lesbian because of the work I've done. And, you know, I told this one patient one day, he goes, oh, I see you're wearing comfortable shoes. I'm like, it's all I've ever worn. He's like, really? I said, since kindergarten. <laughs> and so then my he go, sees one of my colleagues and That's says, amazing. and she's like, why did you tell Barry you were a lesbian? I'm like, I didn't, you know, whatever. I, I said, but, I wore comfortable shoes. <laughs> <laughs> but I am like where you said, I don't have an intimate partner male or female. Uh, I do have friends that would do anything for me, but not that, probably not like move me into their house. And I think part of why I haven't been in an intimate relationship that's been successful, no matter how long it's lasted, has been because I'm much more comfortable with the crisis of the suffering and the dying person than I am in the joy, right? I'm a little uh, unsure about how to stay in joy for a long time. Ah. So that's something I want to explore more, you know, in, in my writing and then thinking about kind of the risk that you take. So like when I had that dream and said, what would have happened? What would I have done with all this joyous time? It's a question I actually have about the life I've chosen to live. I don't regret it, but I think there's a a price, you know, that. Yeah. And, and also, and there's also the definition. I got to tell you, if, if you, if, if what you describe, if what all the stories you told us tonight equates into your passion and what you were meant to do, I heard joy in everything you were doing. Yeah. I kind of did. I got to tell you, I didn't, you know, the the circumstances, the medium might have been death, blood and flesh and piss and shit. However, you were joyfully doing it. 
I don't know. That's what I, I didn't get, you know, I didn't get like a complaining nurse, you no. know, like, why are these people bothering me? You know, I heard you really saw them as medium, you know, and, and I'm also really, um, I have a question. I have a question. I know we're, we're winding down. Do you ever consider teaching? Teaching writing or teaching? Well, teaching writing or how to, how to actually, because I think it is a genre, right? You are talking about a specific thing. I would yeah. definitely take your class, you know, because I like I like films that doing right now. I'm going through the killing. I don't know if you know that television oh, show. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Series. So yeah. right now, I I I gravitate towards that kind of thing. And actually, I'm such a dark snob that I think that if you're not talking about something like 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 small talk for me is like ridiculous, like. <laughs> that's why we're doing the podcast together late night each hate small talk i can't we stand don't know how to do it. like if you if you aids like i can walk into the room and say fuck aids you know what i mean let's start talking about it right now you know before i can go like yeah and did you hear that politician and and trump and what, 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 what I, I cannot do it and it's, so, it's, it's so funny. It's why I had such a hard time in high school. I didn't know how to do small talk. People, you know? <laughs> no, it's like it, a loner. I said, no, can no, you talk about art and photography? And, you know, so anyway, the, so Layton, Mary Jane just answered that question. Could you answer that question? Which question is that? About intimacy and, you know, oh. be, I mean, for me, just real quickly, when I'm not in a relationship or married uh, at a particular, I am a mess. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I got to tell you, I think I'm more inclined to have like three to four lovers all around the world. And that's what I really want as part of my vision. Um, that doesn't mean that one of those people isn't something. I, I guess, I guess it happened when I turned 50. I don't know how, why that I was like, what are you prescribing yourself to and like, ugh, like unlock your mind about what it means to relate to other people. And I enjoy, I enjoy less time with one person. <laughs> well, I know I shouldn't, I feel like this is like anti-popular culture. Like I enjoy like, okay, yeah, we did three days. Ciao. <laughs> I mean, part of it, Wayne just has gotten out of a relation, a long-term relationship. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Six, so. and, a half, six and a half years, and 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 I loved him, but when I really thought about, like, like it was total magical thinking that it was going to work because of of his circumstances and not being out, and I have to be with men or men, plural, that are that have accepted their sexuality and his and present as who they are. And so I was in basically in a six and a half year relationship with someone who wasn't complete, wasn't out. I'm going to ask one last question. Okay. Which is Mary Jane, do you have any questions for us? Well, I just want to tell Layton that I have thought about teaching and I, that is something I would love to do. And, uh, Oh my God, if we were in a class together. Ah. <laughs> but not at university. Can you send her the poem you read? Layton is an amazing writer. And yes, I, I, I really want to connect to His you. writing reminds me of your writing a little bit. And he read me the first piece he wrote. I was like, oh my God, how are you not writing full time? 
And yeah, and Mary Jane, right? Don't tease for a while. <laughs> yeah, you're right. No, no, and no, and the only reason I was saying is that you know, or maybe it's like individual writing coaching. You know what I mean? It's for for somebody about to like. Layton told me not to coach. During the session, and, and I'm doing it. <laughs> and is like, doing it. Hey, for those, for those, for those who are listening to Matt, I said you get very defensive. That he said, "What do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean, don't coach?" And then, of course, he wanted a coach tonight. Today, I'm so glad about that. So for those who are listening to Mad Creative now, we are here with Mary J. Nealon uh, and, of course, myself with Ed Letterman are ha- in conversation with this brilliant, dark, um, uh, dark, dark dress of, 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 of death. I love, no, I want to give her her title, all right, um, and, um, and, and honor that and, and the joy that it brings you. Well, I- I'm pretty excited to have that title. I feel like I've waited all my yeah, life. The wizardress of death. I want. I, I, okay, right. I want you to be completely amazing with that. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed your writing, and I look forward to hearing more and reading more. And Thank you. before we get off, Mary Jane, where can we find your work, or what's coming up? Yeah, well, my book, Beautiful and Broken: One Nurse's Life, is available on Amazon. It's from Gray Wolf Press. And then I have two poetry books from Four Way Books, Rogue Apostle and Immaculate Fuel. And they are often available on Amazon, but they're very old. And then on the Sun Magazine website, I have five essays that they've published over the years. And they're on their website for free. I did take a picture of Beautiful and Broken next to the Eiffel Tower a few weeks ago. to Mary Exciting. So, oh, I, what an honor! Thank you both so yeah. much. Before yeah. we get up late, where are we where are we gonna? What do we want to know? Um, right now, I'm in my 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 multiple my design practice. Um, we're working on a couple of residential high end residential projects, and hopefully a new one. And you can find me at LaydenLewis.com. That's L-E-Y-D-E-N-L-E-W-I-S.com. And it's Layden Lewis at Layden Lewis Design Studio for Instagram. And anything else? Any cool projects you have going on? Or well, the coolest project that I have that, that's in the that's in the works, but we is waiting for funding is my first independent structure, um, freestanding structure. That's supposed to be made out of rammed earth in Khartoum, Sudan. And he might be on TV. So, and I might be on TV. Yeah. So, and uh, you can reach me at edlettermanphoto.com and edlettermancoaching.com. And look, the coolest thing that's happened to me in the last few weeks, I was doing an IMP project and I got to hang out to his glasses for a while and just move them around. And like, you know, I had them for about an hour. and. Whose glasses, John Lennon? I am Kay, the oh. architect, the famous oh, architect. Oh, oh, oh. And um, so that was like, oh, wow. I mean, because he's very well known for his glasses. Yeah. So to have that, you know, to have them for about an hour and photograph, it's going to be in an exhibit in, Cal- in Hong Kong at the Kowloon M Plus uh, Gallery sometime in the, in the future. They're yeah. very, they're very secretive about that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but so anyway, thank you, Mary Jane. That that was amazing. And thank you, were, you so you much. Are, uh, you are amazing. Amazing. 
So I'm going to turn off the recording real quick and we'll... uh, Thank you. Sound editing and theme music by Will Ainsley. Brian Rezepko was basically our mentor who really taught us all the technicals, showed us how to get this online. We would not be here without Brian. So thank you, Brian. The logo is by Layden Lewis and Sharon McLaughlin of Mermaid New York City. And um, if you're creative, we would love to hear from you. We would love to, ha- to email us your story. And if we like it, we would love to have you on. Uh, we are looking for creatives to tell their story, what their challenges are, what they love about working in the creative field, what is working for them. Um, so until next time, I hope you guys listen. This podcast is for you. Thanks.